episode 66 of the Bowery Capital Startup Sales Podcast. Welcome back to the Bowery Capital Startup Sales Podcast. We have with us today Tim Bryan and Brett Robbins, respectively the CRO and head of BizDev at Castora. How's it going today, guys? It's going well. Thanks for having us. It's good. It's good. Excellent. Uh, I'm excited to dig into our topic today. We have uh, one that I know all of our listeners will be really interested in, choosing your scaling units in SaaS pricing. Uh, SaaS pricing is a huge topic, probably one that we could have about 20 podcasts on. Uh, but today we're, we're going to be talking about choosing your scaling units. Uh, we'll go into in a moment what exactly we mean by that. Uh, but first, I just want to turn it back to Tim and Brett to give a little bit uh, on their backgrounds. Sure. So I'll go first. This is Tim. Uh, so thanks again for having us. Uh, I joined Castora uh, almost a year ago, actually a little over a year ago at this point. I'm the chief revenue officer here. Uh, before Castor, I was working for another software company in New York called Movable Inc. I was also the chief revenue officer for three and a half years. Uh, was relatively early employee, I think specifically number eight, although me and my colleagues will argue about the exact numbering. Um, so have really enjoyed my time uh, here at Castora. Uh, before I worked at Movable Inc., I had a background in advertising sales, digital advertising sales specifically, uh, but worked for some large traditional media publishers such as the New York Times, uh, Time Inc., a and &E Television Network, uh, so made the transition from digital media sales to SaaS about you know, four and a half, five years ago at this point. Cool. And this is Brett. Um, so I've been at Castora quite a bit longer than Tim <laughs> since almost the beginning. So similar to your movable ink background, um, I was employee number six or seven at Castora. I think people would also argue that one. Um, but I've definitely been here since nearly the beginning. So about three and a half years now. Um, held a few different roles. So when I got here, there was uh, there was no business side to Castor, just engineering and data science. And so uh, the first person on the sales team um, and the first person to start thinking about our go-to-market strategy, um, which I worked with along with our head of marketing at the time. Um, and then shortly after we hired Tim, I stepped into a role um, and focusing more on alternative revenue streams. So revenue that maybe comes from partners, different verticals, um, different uh, ways that we think about pricing the product, for example. So it took on some of those other parts of the revenue uh, revenue cycle. Prior to all that, I uh, started my career at McKinsey, spent quite a bit of time in the digital space at McKinsey across every industry possible, financial services, pharmaceuticals, retail, CPG, um, but usually looking at digital-focused problems. So built up a background and understanding of how large companies, Fortune 500 companies, are struggling with various, various different aspects of the digital world. Um, and outside of that, I've uh, been an entrepreneur and just generally in the startup and investing space. So happy to be here. Great. Well, happy to have you guys. Uh, I just want to give real quick our listeners a sense for what we can expect from the podcast today. 
as I mentioned, our topic is choosing your scaling units and SaaS pricing. Um, when, when we talk about scaling units, uh, we're referring to the unit or current SaaS pricing schema use uh, in order to figure out what exactly they're charging for their product. So, for example, uh, this scaling unit could be number of users, brands, uh, level of traffic, uh, you know, storage, so gigabytes, for example, uh, number of employees. There are a ton of options. Um, so, you know, an example could be $10 per user per month, uh, and then, you know, you'd have tiers layered on top of that. I think probably most, most listeners are familiar with the concept, and we're going to dig into that today. Uh, you can also expect to learn a little bit more about Castora, uh, as well as Tim and Brett's uh, experiences dealing with, uh, with pricing and scaling units here, as well as at past roles. And hopefully we can, at the end of the day, provide everyone listening with a framework for how you or any other SaaS leader can think about evaluating uh, what scaling units to go with and, and how to optimize their pricing plans uh, over time. Um, so we'll dive into the content in one sec, but you guys just quickly to tell everyone a little bit more about Custora. Sure. Uh, so I'll take that. Uh, we are the leader in customer intelligence for retail. Uh, that is the sole category that we are focused on right now. As Mr. Robbins alluded to, uh, at some point we will get into other categories, but that is our current uh, laser focus. Uh, what we do is that we use machine learning and predictive analytics to understand what each one of your customers, if you're a retailer, are likely to do. How much money are they going to spend with you? What categories are they going to purchase in? Whether or not we think they have a propensity to churn. So really rich insights on individual customers. We then plug those insights into their marketing stack so they can drive campaign execution. The end result of this is more valuable relationships with your best customers. So in a nutshell, that's what we do at Castora. So a little bit more on our background. Uh, so we started in 2010 in a garage. Just kidding, not actually a garage. <laughs> um, but it was a dorm room. Uh, so our co-founders uh, were taking classes at the Wharton School at University of and they were actually taking a course on predictive marketing and marketing analytics and probability modeling in the marketing space. And they said, wow, this research is really interesting. Went to the professor, started talking to the professor about it, saying, well, could we do this? And how would this work in the real world? Is anyone doing this stuff? Um, and he gave them their blessing. And they found some pilot customers under the guidance of Wharton and, and just started looking at what happens when you run these models outside of a lab. And you actually use goes into that. And so um, a really interesting progression of going from the academic world to what it takes to translate academics into the real world. Um, and so that's taken six years. <laughs> <laughs> so for all of you academics out there, it's not easy to take these theoretical concepts that look really, really good on paper, even though you say, hey, well, the variance is going to be super low. We're going to have 99% confidence intervals. And then you go to the real world and you go, well, people's data is just all over the place. So how do you go and how do you change that? And so that's really what we've spent six years building here at Kasora, um, but it is really rooted very deeply um, and very much so in true academic research. And so, um, as Tim mentioned, we have a goal to really deeply understand the customer, we want those understandings and those insights to be accurate and intelligent. Um, and then we want to figure out how do you help retailers who, you know, ultimately at the end of the day trying to think about how do you grow revenue, translate that into a revenue growth initiative. Um, they don't care how accurate the insight is if the insight is going to drive revenue and it's going to drive sustainable long-term growth. And so that's really what our product, that whole manipulation and translation. 
Excellent. Uh, we also, of course, have to hit uh, one last question before we dig in, which is one thing, Tim and Brett, that listeners, no one listening to this podcast would know about you. You both look at me, so I guess that means I have to go first. <laughs> uh, my brother and I wrote and produced a pilot that aired on TV with Sean nice. P. Diddy Combs. Really? It was very random. What story. was it That's called? Long. Was I alive? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was actually called Borrow My Crew. And the whole mm. idea, uh, without getting too into it, my brother had a friend who worked uh, and uh, still works in the industry as a producer for MTV, and they were just looking for ideas. Um, and my brother is a writer. He said, hey, let's try and come up with some ideas. We came up with a whole bunch of them, probably 10. They picked one. The idea was that a celebrity would have, or does have, an entourage that you know, supports that celebrity. Want, mm-hmm. What if you gave that entourage to a random person? So we had, the first one was actually a girl who was going to her prom, and she got J-Lo's entourage. So she got the security guard, the hairdresser, Amazing. you know, the stylist, uh, the trainer. So it's kind of taking these uh, random young people and giving them access to, you know, celebrities entourage that they would never get on their own yeah very pimp my ride super sweet 16 generation we were a little before that but yes yeah so maybe you're a little bit too early to the market yeah that's what i like to think um pretty much no one knows this about me um similarly weird entertainment story um but i am a trained tap dancer and i one time tapped on a dining room table inside of a mansion with joan rivers so rest in peace joan rivers Mm. Um, she but was she genius. was singing at the top of her lungs and tapping, and I was tapping right alongside of her. I was 11 years old, but this did happen. <laughs> and naturally, we ended up in enterprise software. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's still a surprising amount of tap dancing done yeah, in enterprise software touche, today. We'll, we'll get into that in next week's <laughs> podcast. Uh, well, I think if I ask follow-up questions on that, that will probably subsume the entire show. So let's go ahead and move into the content. Um, you know, we have basically five uh, areas of consideration around scaling pricing units we're going to dig into today. Um, but to kind of set the stage, let's just, you know, make sure we're all on the same page in terms of, in terms of scaling units, it would probably be a, a helpful exercise if you guys could, uh, just talk a little bit about what scaling units Astoria uses. Uh, just as an example to make sure listeners know. Sure. Um, I think for us, which is also the topic of this conversation, it's not a static thing. So ultimately, you're trying to think about what is the best way for us to articulate our price to explain the way that we came up with that price. And something that we'll probably visit uh, a bunch of times in this conversation, how do we make sure that is aligned with our unique value? Right now, uh, the way that we do that at Castor is that we look at your active customers. Our definition of active is customers who have made, so this is customers of our customers, so a lot of customer references you're going to get here, uh, who have made a purchase within the last 12 months. Healthy relationships that you as a retailer have with these customers. These are the people that we want to make sure that you retain. These are the people that we want to make sure that you What we say is, hey, that's how we come up with the price for our software. There have been some versions of pricing before our current uh, model that we have landed on right now. There may be ones in the future. Uh, and I think that's what we kind of want to share with the audience, how we got here, how we think about it, uh, how we try and optimize for it, and how we try and test new things. Yeah, and just to 
give you guys a general theme to think about. So on my very first week at Castora, and you guys can think back. So there's six or seven people in the office, and I'm brand new to the team. Um, and I said to the team, double or triple our price. Um, at the time, we were charging $999 a month across the board for everyone. So just under $1,000. Mm. Um, and I was coming in saying, let's increase it. Um, our uh, CEO co-founder said, well, what is your rationale? Why are we doing this? I said, there's no rationale. We just need to grow the price because it's too cheap and we want to sell something that's aligned with a higher value. And before doing any analytics, any research, any thinking on how the market was going to respond, it was just this gut feeling of we need to be a, a product that is aligned deeper value within the company if we're ever going to get to the point where we're selling, you know, multi hundred thousand dollar, multi million dollar uh, engagements with these retailers. And so the first step was just go out there, put something bigger out there, try it, see how the market responds. Um, but I think that what you're going to see through today's discussion is this is a, a very common theme. Sometimes you need to just make the decision, go with the information you have, and then very quickly gather feedback on what's happening so that you can adjust to it properly. Great. So with that, let's dig into kind of our five considerations scaling your pricing units. Uh, I'll just kind of give a quick uh, rundown of each one so our listeners know what we're going to hit, and then we'll just take them one by one. Uh, so what we'll talk about is first aligning your scaling units with value. So when we say aligning with value, we mean uh, aligning your scaling units or currency with the value propositions to your customer. Second, we'll talk about aligning with. Uh, so probably everyone out there is familiar with uh, you know, the concept of product modules or the modularization of a product. Um, there are do's and don'ts around this as you think about kind of breaking down your product to, to suit your pricing model. So we'll talk about that. Third, we'll talk about aligning with sector. And this is kind of from two angles, uh, both thinking about where your, uh, how your scaling units compare to the scaling units of others in the sector that you choose, sector that you're trying to create or define. Uh, and then the last two would just be testing. So how to, how to think about testing uh, your, your scaling units and your pricing model early on, kind of in a vacuum, theoretically what's best, and then evolving. So how do you do all this when you already have paying customers and manage them? So there are five. Uh, let's go ahead and start with aligning our currency with customer value prop. And Tim, why don't you kick this off? Yeah, and one thing I'll also add that the time frame that Brett was referring to originally when he joined the company early on, probably selling to a different uh, segment of the retail category than we're currently selling to. So correct me if I'm probably more what we would now refer to as mid-market or SMB. Whereas right now, we are almost exclusively selling to enterprise customers. That's so there's right. a bunch of implications. One is with procurement departments, what you're not dealing with when you're selling to SMB or mid-market. Um, you know, the price point, the value is much larger just because the business that you're trying to have an impact on is much larger. Uh, you're no longer dealing with credit cards. Uh, you're dealing with contracts, MSAs. It's <laughs> so lots of interesting um, challenges and opportunities that uh, come up there. So back to your question, one of the things here at Castora that we've thought about and gone through, we need to be able to provide these insights for our customers, all of their historical data on their customers. 
And the nature of historical data is you're going to have some customers who haven't made a purchase with you and they made a purchase with you five years ago. We need that to run these models and deliver this high uh, degree of accuracy in terms of the predictions that we have. Okay, so when we were first thinking about pricing, or when the team was first thinking of pricing, let's price based upon the total records that you have within your database. That can be problematic, especially for some of these large enterprise customers, because they have data, which is great, that goes back or maybe even five years or seven years. They may have you know, 50 million customers in their database, but only 10 million or 12 million are active. And it's interesting, although it's not your intention, you can lead to a situation where people are going to respond to the incentives that you are giving them, not even realizing that it's an incentive that you're giving them. So what I'm referring to here is, hey, maybe we don't need to give you all of our historical data because if you're going on the total records that I have in my database, it's interesting, you also notice that there'll be a difference with the business team as well as the procurement team, but the procurement team is basically just trying to get a better deal. And even though the implication of them getting a better deal may mean the service won't work. That's not necessarily right. what they're thinking about. Um, and they're doing their jobs, and we respect and understand that. So we've kind of created a perverse incentive for them to not give us the full data set as a way to get around the established. Yeah. So very simple example of, hey, this is leading to some conversations that really aren't beneficial to the customer, let alone us. Um, also, if our value is really first and foremost going to be delivered to those active customers, why don't we just tether the currency? Why don't we just talk about pricing based upon that? Well, yeah. so so that's an interesting question because so in the beginning, for us at least, we thought that our value was tied to the retention, the whole concept of retention. And to us, where our product was at the time was exclusively reducing customer churn. We had an ability to identify and predict who was going to churn, and then we could systematically or automate a way for the company to reduce those the churning customers. So we said to ourselves, well, we should make sure we have all customer records because we need our models to run. We need to know who's potentially at risk, who's very deeply at risk, um, who is someone that we can or cannot reach out to. And then we thought, well, we're creating value in this churning and retention space, so it makes sense to link pricing to inactive customers or link pricing to your total when if you think logically when the customer hears that they go well, why am i paying you based on my inactive records i'm paying you to drive retention to bring more customers um, who have made a first purchase to make a second purchase to make customers who have lapsed at some point in time to become active again um, and so it took actually a, a lot longer than it should have for us to really internalize that and say okay so the value we are driving is extending the lifetime of an individual or creating more revenue across all customers where there's a potential to create more revenue and you know putting that in a box says those are your active customers these are the people be you know made valuable or made you know lovers of the brand um, but it took a while for us to get there and what i would say to the listeners is um, try to really listen to the customer for us we said oh you have complaints about us uh, sending us your entire customer file let me explain to you our pricing model let me try to you know convince you by forcing it down your throat that this is actually a perfectly fine price you're not overpaying you should send us all your data even if you cut your data we're still going to charge you the same amount we tried all these different ways handle and then in reality it's like well maybe they're reacting to something more fundamental and there's a different way to frame the whole conversation yeah i would also think somewhat like you're just talking past each other like i don't think the intent that you guys had at that point was that this was some scheme that would enable you to charge you know 120 percent more than you would have been able to charge otherwise and you thought it was directly aligned with your value it just wasn't resonating with the customer so i think your point is very valid you know you may think it's the best idea and may make a lot of sense to you but 
have that same response. Yeah, I think a few interesting things to draw out there as well. You know, at, uh, at Bowery, we focus exclusively on, on B2B SaaS. We see a lot of startups that come in thinking they're going to uh, align their pricing with some sort of uh, performance, hmm. uh, like a lift metric, for example. So like a, but, it'll be pay-per-performance per, pay in terms of like, hey, the pricing is going to be very for you, or that's how they'll just come up with a price? It can be both. I mean, sometimes we see people coming in. I mean, usually if you're a subscription product, it's a little bit tough to do that. But either though, some people do come in saying, uh, uh, we're going to charge you, you know, based on lift in revenue or uh, or something like that. But more often, it's they make a promise of X or Y. Yeah. And the, the problem with that, especially when your product is effectively mitigating a negative, <laughs> is you, they don't really see what you're doing well. And if something, say a churn event, say a, a churn event happens, it may not be because of your product, right? That could be because they fire their head of customer success, who is great. And so you're just kind of setting yourself up for failure because additionally, if your product is really good, over time, you're just setting the bar higher and higher. So the, so performance-based scaling metrics are, are tricky. Um, I think the second point I want to draw out is uh, you know, I think if, if we could, yeah, if we jump in there for one second. So I, I think we have a lot of opinions on performance-based pricing as well. I think in would sit in your camp, which is um, it's probably not where you want to tether your pricing as far as a currency standpoint. Is purely to the improvement in a very specific metric, um, because there's a huge number of externalities that can contribute to that metric, either increasing or decreasing. Um, and there's always going to be questions on just how much of that comes from what you did. Uh, so it's really hard to prove at the end of the day in a deterministic way that you drove that value. What I would say, though, on, on the flip side is it's really to where the value is going to come from, yeah. to be able to know what metrics you're going to measure, be able to cleanly measure those metrics, align on those metrics, because at the end of the day, when you want to drive the renewal, you want to increase price. You want to be able to tell the story in a very simple way where the business can look at it and go, yeah, I totally see that value. Um, but I would say that you don't want to directly tether your price to that. Well, yeah, I agree with you. And I also think you don't want to be in a situation where you and your customer are fighting over success. Yeah. Right? It's a good thing. Uh, but if your pricing is based upon that success, you know, you're kind of giving them an incentive to argue with you about it to get that pricing down. Yep. Uh, that's what I do agree, and I'm sure a lot of people within your portfolio as well as over here at Castora, you know, we tell a story about the impact that we're going to have on that business or think that we can have on that business. We try and articulate that with numbers. This is the relative improvement that we can have on this KPI. This is the relative improvement that we can have on this KPI. This is based upon benchmarks. This is based upon what we've understood from you in terms of the limitations that you have, whether or not that are tech stack or creative or executional uh, limitations. So... I think we want to be very transparent in terms of saying this is the value that we think we are going to be able to deliver for you. This is how we've come up with that. But I still think you have to come to a point where the price is a fixed price. Yep. Great. Yeah, I think the, the other two minor things that I, I thought was was interesting in your points, uh, your consideration around uh, historical... This is something that a lot of uh, you know, probably every machine learning based SaaS startup faces, which is your product is really only effective if you maximize the amount of data you get into the system. 
at the same time, you want to minimize the you know the difficulty of implementation. But you know, I think the model that you guys have, have set up aims to maximize the efficiency of the product off the bat. So, in other words, uh, the way that you align your unit, the access to the product that you give, or what you require in implementation, shouldn't reduce the efficacy of the product. Um, and you know that the, the model focusing on active customers, I think, is great as well as a as a third final response because it allows them to kind of test and step into uh, you know the the, the product. Uh, you know they know that they're not going to be penalized for for customers that aren't active or or value they're not getting. Um, so with that, we should probably uh, move on to our second point. Uh, you know. Aligning scaling units with value is, is a big one, so I'm glad we spent a lot of time on it. This next one is important too, though. So aligning with product. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, uh, you know, thinking about product modules as it relates to price, uh, you know, how you align those two is kind of a big area of thought. Um, you know, Brett, I know you, you had a, a lot of thoughts on this one. You want to kick that one off? Sure. Yeah, um, so I think that... In general, there is a uh, there's an interest in the SaaS world in creating product modules, because creating product modules allows you to create these different tiers where you charge one price at one point in time, another price later, another. Um, I think that you know, go ahead. And Tim. I would say yeah. even beyond price, it allows you to say, hey, we have just to pick a random number, five things that we sell. Right. And especially in the world of new business, you don't have to buy all five things to start with us. You could yeah. buy one, you could buy two, you could buy three. So it's a way to potentially lower the bar when it comes to entry, but also allow you as the seller and the provider to keep that value in your pocket that you could then sell to them later on. Totally. And and I think maybe one of the reasons popular is when we ourselves go to a website and we see, you know, basic pricing, premier pricing, advanced pricing, expert pricing, whatever these things are, it feels like there's this like opportunity to differentiate. You get to figure out, well, where do you fit? What's the right package for you? And I think as a consumer, when you see that on a website, it, it kind of feels like, oh, this is a simple pricing model. I can get started for really a very little amount of money. Um, and then I could, you know, scale. I actually love to use the example of Sonicare. I don't know if anyone uses the Sonicare electronic toothbrush. Um, they have, they started with one model. They probably have 30 models at this point that range everywhere from $59 for the handle, which will last you five to 10 years, all the way up to $400 for the handle that's going to last you the exact same amount of time. There's virtually no difference between these <laughs> products. I've been a Sonicare user for like 20 plus years now. Um, I always use the cheapest version and they will actually replace it for free. Um, so it's amazing to me concept here of, you know, using modules almost because you think it's going to help you differentiate, maximize price, um, you know, get all of the consumers because everyone can pick and choose from the Chinese menu. When I think in reality, my personal opinion on modules is, is that most of the time it creates a lot more complexity than is yeah. necessary. That the goal that Tim, you were talking about is, well, we want to have something in our back pocket. We want to make it easy for them to get started. In reality, you turn the pricing conversation into this thing of, well, what specifically am I going I need that piece. Okay, if I use that piece, okay, well, why is this thing cost this amount and this thing cost this amount? Well, I think also on top of that, you create the sense of what don't I know? So yeah. I'm the buyer. You guys have other things. Are you going to charge me at some other point? It's uh, it's not as transparent as they would like it. Yes. Now, at the same time, I do think there's probably some really good uses yeah. for um, 
for modules, I mean, I know you were you were thinking about this idea that you want something in your back pocket. So at renewal time or in intra contract time, to someone, hey, you haven't been using this. There's this locked button over here. I saw you click on it a few times, or you tried the locked thing, and now we have to start charging you for it. So there's this like idea of like how do you always increase the value of that customer relationship? Yeah. Excellent. Well, with that, let's let's move to our third category. Uh, we're talking about aligning your pricing model with the sector that you consider your product to be in or the sector that you're trying to create. And I think that relates to uh, the budget you're accessing as well as to the, to the comps that your buyers yep. will be uh, comparing you to. Um, so, Tim, maybe you want to kick that one off? Yeah, so as I mentioned before, we sell to the retail category. And the marketing stack in the retail category, like probably all categories, is pretty vast. There's a lot of different <laughs> services that these customers use. And fundamentally, although we probably want to all think we're beautiful snowflakes, our buyers like to put us in buckets. Uh, and especially when it comes to... You are a snowflake. I am a snowflake. Now, <laughs> <laughs> um, they need something or... Uh, they want to be able to compare you to something just to get a sense of how do I evaluate this price? How do I evaluate this cost? How do I think about this value? Um, so I think we have to acknowledge that. Uh, so on one side, you want to company within a new space and you want to create the pricing. That is good uh, and you want to create as much value for your business as possible, uh, but you also have to be mindful of the fact that the customer is probably going to say, uh, I need some comparable or something to... Uh, look at you guys in a lens. That also creates an opportunity, though, because you can find different products that that company is investing in to the tune of $5 million a year or probably $20,000 a year. So how do you turn that into your advantage? So specifically here at Castora, since we are about customer analytics data in its most basic form, there are millions and millions of dollars that these companies are spending on their databases. We would argue, and we've heard more importantly, our customers articulate to us, you know, I spend you know, $5 million a year to house this data with company A, and I don't get any value out of it. There's insights in that data. I don't know how to access those insights. If I could access those insights, I don't know how to leverage them and operationalize them across my marketing. What we do here at Castora. At the same time, not only are we kind of talking about our value and helping them understand it, we're also showing that you're spending millions and millions of dollars on something that you're really getting minimal value at. It's really kind of just storage at the end of the day. We're going to allow you, allow you to take that data, operationalize it, have that increase uh, the value of the relationship that you have with your customers. That is a million-dollar opportunity itself. So it's be a sleight-of-hand thing, but I think it, it, again, has to do with trying to punch above your weight and put yourselves in a bucket that is probably actually aligned with your value. So another example, uh, uh, multiple use cases for Castora are based around email. Email is a great way to speak to your existing customers. You could do direct mail, you could do CRM retargeting via Facebook custom audiences. We don't want to be looked at as an email optimization tool. Great, I'm spending this much money on my email service provider. You're going to help me optimize that. You're going to be probably a fraction of that budget. Right, so it's an example of a fork in the road where if you went one way or allowed the conversation to go one way, it could really diminish your value, whereas you went another way, it could actually help you realize the value that we believe that we're actually delivering to people. 
Yeah, I would say there are some things to, to caution you about here. So if you are thinking about where within the organization you want to align your values. So for example, for us, you know, we um, are so uh, connected to the data that, that we are speaking to the generally kind of the, the data-oriented budgets, CRM budgets, um, databasing budgets. Um, the thing that we always have to be, or we've been very careful about, and I would encourage people to be careful about, is think about what it is you're trying to disrupt. So your value proposition is your value proposition. We're not coming in saying we're disrupting the databasing market. We've got a new solution. It's not just cloud-based. It's cloud-based and then some with rainbows. You know, that's not the, the pitch. That's not the purpose here. So you have to be careful that you're aligning with a certain area, but you don't want to argue that you're going to then take the functionality of that area and be able to replicate it. I think for us, where we've seen this most closely is um, when you think about just the based category of CRM. Um, CRM is, is the oldest uh, thing in marketing, I would say. I mean, the, the concept of R, F, and M and these database vendors and the traditional direct mail or direct response marketing is where all of this started. And obviously, now that email is here, there's been a lot of you know changes. And that's why you know big data is so important. That's why predictive analytics is even more important, less lead time, et cetera. Um, but you know, we're not coming in saying, the new age of CRM. We actually very deeply respect what CRM vendors can bring to the table. Um, and there's a component of data cleansing, of matchback, of organization, of you know all sorts of components of, of the CRM world. That's actually not that interesting to Kasura yeah. necessarily today or even in the future. Um, and so again, we have to be thinking, okay, we're aligning with a certain budget. We want to make it clear to you why you know our pricing is the way it is or what who in the organization should be paying for this. But it, we are still speaking to our value proposition, which is a capability that they don't have today, not necessarily trying to say we're disrupting something. It's not what we think we deliver. Totally. And another point that I would make too is, you know, you're not optimizing for a transaction. You're optimizing for a relationship. Mm -hmm. So whatever price you establish, there's going to be a moment of truth beyond their agreement to that price, whether or not that price is going to hold up. Right, it's going to be in the renewal. It's going to be if you try and do some type of upsell. So, I mean, it should somewhat be obvious, but yes, you want to maximize the revenue that you're driving to your business because of the value that you're providing to these customers. But also be mindful of the actual value you deliver because we want to have long-term sustainable relationships with our customers. And yes, we want them to pay us a lot of money. More importantly, we want them to make a lot of money because that's how we're going to justify them continuing to work with us and paying us money. So it's also something just keep in mind, you know, be conscious of what you can actually deliver. And I think that was kind of somewhat, uh, I mean, not totally your point. There was a bunch of other things where we want to focus what we do, why we do it, why we think it's unique. Um, but it also gets into something too, is just how are you, which is outside the topic of currencies, if I may, just how are you going to measure and articulate your value uh, two days before the contract being signed, but six months after kickoff, 12 months after kickoff? I mean, that's really important to think about as well. Because, you know, we look at sales and marketing and customer success as just a relationship with our customers. And we want to make sure that we're optimizing for the entire flow. And you really have to make sure that the expectations that you set up front, the currencies that you use up front are going to set you up for success down the line. Yeah. And I, just uh, speaking to like the CEOs out there who are probably playing the sales role today and then ultimately the future CROs, that the you the you have to give immediate and strict 
uh, or aggressive feedback to any salesperson that is selling stuff that your product uh, doesn't do. Like you cannot just come out there and sell to close the deal because as Tim is saying, you get into this really terrible cycle and we see this constantly in companies that, that show up where the marketing says one thing, the sales team says another thing, customer success tries to deliver something different and you will not renew it. So yes, it might feel like, wow, we brought on all these customers. We're at 1 million ARR. Finally, now we're at 2 million ARR. They that will quickly become a churn issue if your product doesn't actually deliver what the team is delivering. So I would just say to say, don't be afraid to like quickly get rid of those salespeople because they shouldn't be salespeople and they give all of us a bad name. Yeah. Um, so salespeople, your job is to be able to articulate in the most effective way possible what the product does and to be able to help many, many different types of people understand what it does. That's a good salesperson. A good salesperson is not someone who spins a great story. Yeah, I mean, helps our customers maximize CLV, I mean, that's what we're trying to do as well, right? So it's not, again, just about, you know, what brought them in the door, what was that first transaction, but how do you just grow and retain them? Yep. Excellent. So we have our fourth and fifth points. Brett, I'm going to go back to you to answer the fourth, just because you've been around a little bit longer. This area is testing. So if you think about, you know, put yourself in a stage SaaS founder shoes, uh, you know, you, you've got some customers, you, you, it's really important that you don't churn any or, you know, Tim, to your point, uh, piss any off or overstep your bounds, really. So how do you, I mean, how do you test? What did you guys do? Yeah, so I, I kicked it off with this story because it, it's so true to the way that I think we do everything here, um, which is, you know, fail, but fail fast. Um, or uh, what is it? Uh, good decision, bad decision, no decision is another one of our values here at Castora. Um, and I would say that these are very important. I think every founder, they probably, you know, should be living good decision, bad decision, no decision. Um, but in reality, a lot of times you go into these meetings and you, you kind of have this great discussion and then you don't do something because everything else comes in the way and, and takes over. So what I would say is, is that um, it's okay not to have the information at all. It's okay not to have done the analytics yet. It's okay to be operating on gut feel. I would say don't go to the market. Don't go to your you know biggest prospect, your you know the opportunity that's going to make or break the year and try out something that is totally brand new without any data points. Okay. Try to figure out what is something that sounds and feels good to all the smart people in the room, and then just try it. Try it right away. Ask questions. Listen. See how people react. Um, Tim and I were joking in the beginning. It's like when you uh, when you try pricing with someone and they start asking all these questions around. Well, how did you get to that price? Or what does that include? Or what does it not include? And what are the different pieces? It, it's a pretty good indication that you're not you know on the right currency. That there's too many uncertainties. There's too many things that the team is trying to think about. Um, pricing should be very clear. It should be very obvious to the person how you came up with it. If you're getting that feedback, okay, I understand that they. Might pay for it, but if they understand what you're doing and it makes sense to them, then I think, you know, you drive forward that and try to explore it more. Uh, yeah, it's funny. It's almost like you could do a test. Like if they can explain it to someone else with you not in the room, you are successful. <laughs> if they can't, that is a bad sign. Yeah, absolutely. Simplicity yeah. is key. Um, our last point is thinking about evolving the, the pricing you know, not only might a customer, so say, you know, say you do some testing and you come up with a new framework, maybe not everyone is going to get on board of that, right? But when they come to renew, they may switch over to it. Uh, another aspect of evolving the pricing model is as you're growing as a company and releasing new modules or features over time, 
it might kind of evolve what budgets you're reaching mm -hmm. into. Um, so, yeah, I'll give one example, which is uh, from my time at Movable. When we, uh, so Movable Inc. is a software company, as I mentioned before. It is focused on delivering live content in email at the moment that it's open instead of the moment that it's deployed. So, creating rich experiences in email for marketers. Uh, when I was at Movable, we had a bunch of what we referred to at that time as applications, more or less different elements that you could put in that email template. The thing that we had was based upon quote-unquote impressions. So if you have one app in that email uh, and that email is open, that's one impression, two apps, two impressions, so forth and so on. We uh, wanted to move and did move to a currency of open. So it doesn't matter how many pieces of software, how many applications you have within that email, and open is an open is an open. But you had some customers who were using just one of your applications, and the cost per open was a little bit higher than and, uh, the idea was, hey, we don't want to limit you from using us in more of your opens. We want you to go to town, put as much functionality in as you want. But you had to explain that to some of those customers saying, well, right now I'm just using you for one thing. And yes, I have this option because of the new currency that you guys have rolled out to use multiple pieces of MI functionality, but I don't want to do that. And the way that we were able to successfully navigate that is just talk about the fact that they were really underutilizing our value. There was a lot more things that they could do. And our customer success team was really great at speaking to those customers and saying, yes, this is what you're doing right now, but if you did you know, A and B plus C or A, B, C plus D, the returns that you would see, the experience that you create would be so much better. And ultimately, it did become one of those situations where it was a benefit to us and a benefit to them. Yeah, and then building on that a little bit, I'll tell you one story from the Castora side as well. So we started first with a flat rate business model um, and then moved to a variable. And so shifting from those that they're just so completely different. Um, I think the big learning for us was when you are pricing with a flat rate model, you should be very, very clear what is included in that price. Um, it's not that we had an issue of customers taking advantage of us at that time when we were flat rate. It's more that when you want to move later to a variable model or you want to upsell or you want to increase the value of the customer relationships you have, um, it's you need it needs to have been clear what was included so that when you're talking about things that are incremental, they don't look at the contract and say, but wasn't it everything before for these different pieces? So I think the more that your pricing model actually links to very specific things that you deliver, features you deliver, value that you deliver, and then you can speak to things that are truly incremental. Um, the, the, the company, the customer should be, you know, they still don't want to pay more, but they should at least understand, okay, I understand where you're coming from. Now we can have our negotiation. You know, you get to point to the ROI, they get to point to the fact that they're a longstanding customer, um, and you have this, you know, dialogue and you end up somewhere in the middle. It's a great like, there's a difference between understanding and agreeing, right? <laughs> no, but it's true because like the first thing is like you just want to get to the point where they understand what you're talking about. You understand what they're talking about. Then there's a separate issue of whether or not we're going to agree to it. But make sure you have the form yeah. before you start arguing. The yeah, latter. if they don't, if they don't understand it, if they say, I mean, the contract says this other thing, and you're telling me this other thing, then you know you're not going to be able to move anywhere in that pricing. Like, the negotiation's not going to happen until both parties feel like they've got some bargaining chips, and yeah. they generally feel like um, at the a good deal yep and it's like you know in the first case they just feel like they're probably getting ripped off like no i've got everything and now you want to charge me for new things it's just that, adding complexity yeah. or an adversarial nature to something that doesn't need to have either yeah. of those two and the last thing i'd say about this is you should think about the growth of your business model as not just being growth in new business but growth of business within your existing customer base obviously yeah. all the you know great investors and SaaS people out there talk about you know how we think 
not on what, how much of each part should be contributing to your annual, you know, growth and revenue and all those different pieces. So I'm not going to go into that, but I would say that, you know, it, it is true that the easiest place to sell is where you've already sold. These are people where you have a proven track record. They probably like you. You've got great relationships. You know, a lot of people from the brand um, or whatever company it is. So you want to find ways to increase the values of value of those relationships over time. Um, adapting your pricing model could be one entry point there because you adapt your pricing model. Now you can have a different discussion with them, assuming that you can start first with getting agreement with them that, hey, we're going to move forward with something, you know, different. Great. That about brings us to time, but I'm going to put one last question on, on each of you for kind of a quick fire response, which would just be put, you know, put yourself in the shoes of, uh, uh, of an early stage SaaS founder. Um, you know, imagine you guys went out and started a company tomorrow. What's kind of the one key piece of advice you would you would gravitate around relative to pricing? Exactly, relative to you know what we're talking about. So currency units within pricing. Yeah, I would say definitely just try and keep it simple. I think simple is always better. Uh, easy to understand, easy to evaluate. Uh, try and. Test things out, though, too. Um, people will give you their feedback, right? <laughs> they are not shy. Uh, we get a lot of feedback from people, some feedback that we love, some feedback that we have to recalibrate and come back with another talking point to try and gain alignment. So don't be test things out. Don't be afraid to try things. I think as Brett mentioned before, like, listen. You know, like, there's a lot of great feedback and guidance that you're going to get. It's not about being right. It's about finding a framework that works for everybody. And if that takes you down a path that wasn't what you initially thought or for some reason you don't think makes the most sense, I think you're probably looking at it the wrong way. Yeah. Um, so that's three things, Tim, not one, but that's okay. Um, but just to, to give you guys uh, one more to think about here. So in every moment, there's going to be some type of negotiation. Um, don't kid yourself that there's not going to be a negotiation. Even if the pricing is made clear on your website and you're just taking a credit card, um, you can probably, or I can almost guarantee you, you're going to have a contact us location where there's a pricing for some sort of special package. And people always want to know what the contact us one is because everybody, like we said in the beginning, it's a snowflake. So you're going to have a negotiation. So you want to set your price in a way where you can negotiate successfully. Um, you want to have the chips on your side to negotiate. You want to have the information to negotiate. I would also say don't set negotiations in a way where it's two, three, four X where you want to end up. Um, no one enjoys feeling like they got ripped off. So if you price it, you know, a thousand dollars and you're willing to give it away for a hundred, you know, people are going to learn that very quickly and you know, it's not going to be credible what you come to the table with. So I would say expect negotiation, but you're negotiating points of the deal points of the contract. Um, but you know, you should be trying to, you know, know where your bottom line is, where your pricing, you know, is and, and, and leave a little bit of room for you to have a discussion with people so that you you know, unable to run the business. One other thing, though, I will add is, you know, we're talking somewhat about flexibility. We're talking about listening to people, but also be very adamant and confident in the value that you mm -hmm. deliver. I mean, most of the times that we go in to speak to people, they don't pick a number bigger than what we had in mind. Um, and you need to, A, be prepared to walk away. You need to know uh, the value that you're going to deliver. You need to be able to be able to articulate that. So this is not about a justify that. Uh, it is also really having confidence in the solution that you spent so much time building and that you're now out there talking about. Excellent. Well, I think, uh, I think from there we will wrap, but thank you so much again, Tim and Brett of Castora for joining us. I think it was a great episode.
And thanks to everyone who tuned in. We will see you again next week for another episode of the Bowery Capital Startup Sales Podcast.